In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. And welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we could be with practical tools to live your faith in our modern world of today. And this week, we brought in our good friend, familiar face, Father John Flader, uh, to continue speaking about the final things, because he has a special announcement here today that he's releasing another book, uh, continuing, I know we did another episode uh, before about um about uh, the final things and and uh, proving the existence oh, i'll cut that out um final things so he has a new book here today welcome aboard father good to see you again george thanks for having me excellent so i hear you're you're always keeping busy you're always keeping busy uh, <laughs> and uh, you come up with another book uh, called the final exam that's uh, it's just astounding. I know I know you you alluded to that in a previous episode when we did the tribute about a week ago to His Eminence Cardinal Pell, and then we did the tribute before uh, for His Holiness Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. But uh, it, it got me wondering, what is this book about? Let's go straight into it. Okay, it's a sequel to the previous one, which is entitled "Dying to Live," and. When I wrote that first book, Dying to Live, it was because a friend was on a retreat that I was giving, and he said, wouldn't it be good if there was a book about life after death for people who don't believe in it? So that led to Dying to Live, written for non-Catholics. The target audience is people who don't believe in life after death, who might be atheists, they might be Buddhists, Hindus, whatever religion they might have, or none. And I'm addressing it to them, so one had to argue from reason and experience. So that book has sold extraordinarily well. Of all the books that I've written, that one has sold the best. I visited the Connor Court publisher when I was up in Brisbane a couple of weeks ago, and it's, it's number four on the list of about 40 books that he brings out every year. And it's behind some very well-known authors like Ian Plymer on climate change and Jared Henderson on the media beat up of Cardinal Pell. So I'm competing with some very eminent writers there. So anyway, Dying to Live came out early last year, 2022. And it started to sell very well, people buying multiple copies, some very good results from that. And then I had an email from a friend in Brisbane, whom I've known for many, many years. And he himself has written books. He's a motivational speaker. And he said, please, 
write another book in this same style. The style of Dying to Live is very conversational, very informal, short sentences, sometimes sentences that aren't complete, but that is part of that, of that style of writing. So he wanted another book in that style. I naturally thanked him for his email and had no intention whatsoever to write another book because as you say, I'm pretty busy. I really don't have time to write books. But then about a month later, I was sitting in our chapel praying about it and our Lord gave me the idea, well, if, the, if there's some topic for which you've already written quite a bit, and it might be related to dying to live, to the afterlife, that is, to the last things, then maybe it's worth thinking about. And then the idea came that the last chapter of dying to live is entitled, What Must I Do? The reader has at least got to the last chapter, hasn't jettisoned the book as this something I'm not they're, they're not interested in, but he's got to the last chapter, what must I do to get to heaven, which I now believe in. I believe in God, I want to get to heaven. What must I do? There's a number of practical suggestions there. And among them are, be sorry for your sins. And here are some of the sins you might have committed. So we mentioned, I can't remember how many, four or five or six, sins that the average person commits. Be very sorry for your sins. And then it occurred to me that we could develop that chapter with a whole treatment of moral life in Christ. And, and that is what the final exam is about. So it's about moral life and what we must do to get to heaven. Not just a few sins, but the whole of the Ten Commandments. And this yeah. book is based on part three of the Catechism, which I have treated in two different levels beforehand. One, when I was giving classes on the Catechism as director of the Adult Education Center in the early 2000s, and that was a very full covering of the, of the Catechism of the fine-tooth comb, one might say, going through every single paragraph and talking about its meaning. And then at a lesser level, I had that series of DVDs and the book, Journey into Truth, Instructions in the Catholic Faith. Yeah. So that was a condensed version, somewhat condensed version of the original commentary on the catechism. So that was what I could start with for this final book. It's a treatment of moral life based on the catechism, which is divided as always, whenever we study moral theology, into two main sections, general moral principles and specific moral issues. The latter one, of course, is divided however you want, but the Catechism does it by the Ten Commandments. The first part is the role of conscience, the different types of sins, some are more serious than others, the role of the emotions, different types of laws where we get the, the moral principles. And what I have in this book is a long chapter on the natural law, because as I said, this book too is written for non-Catholics. You cannot argue from the catechism. You can maybe make some references 
to the catechism, but you cannot argue from the catechism or really arguing from the Bible. You've got to start with a much broader perspective, and that is the natural law. So one of the questions that I put in the mind of the reader in one of the early chapters is, how is God going to judge me? I think I'm a pretty good person, but is that what he's going to take into account? Or does he have some other standard that I don't know about? If so, what is it? If I want to pass that final exam that you speak about, which is the judgment, then tell me how God is going to judge me. So that's the beginning of that chapter on objective morality. So we, we argue that morality is not subjective. What you make of it, and we give examples to show the reader that it can't be subjective moral relativism. There must be an objective standard. So that's a very important chapter. Another important chapter towards the beginning on general moral issues is one on suffering. I'd given a paper on suffering in a bioethics seminar that I had organized in Tasmania when I was in the chaplain of the University of Tasmania. And I gave a paper on the Christian meaning of suffering. And I argue in that chapter in this book that the way we face suffering has a great bearing on how we will do in the judgment. We can reject suffering, we can complain about it, we can hate God for allowing us to suffer, and then we're going to lose all the merit, or we can welcome suffering, which God allows, taking into account that God himself, Jesus Christ, suffered more than we ever will. And when you look at it from that point of view, then suffering can have not only meaning, it can be a blessing. And so there are seven blessings of suffering in that chapter. These were ones that I mentioned in the talk that I gave in Tasmania. And mind you, again, in that seminar in Tasmania, I knew I was talking to an immense majority of non-Catholics and people of perhaps pagan, um, atheistic, whatever yeah. views. They were coming yeah. to a bioethics seminar on, on the meaning of life and the importance of life. So that's an important chapter there too. And then we entitled it The Final Exam. And this is a bit humorous if you like. And in the first chapter, I tell the reader, we've taken many exams in life from primary school, secondary school, perhaps tertiary education. There were some theoretical exams. There were some practical exams, driving a car, flying an airplane, a person who is doing a TAFE course has to do practical exams in ensuring that they are able to function as an electrician or a carpenter or a panel beater or whatever it might be. So we've taken many exams and sometimes we might have failed, but it wasn't the end of the world. We could change course. We could take the exam again. We could skip that subject. But there's one exam that we're all going to take. And this one is the last one. This is the final exam. This is the judgment in the moment of our death. We desperately must pass this exam. So this book is preparing for the judgment. Here is some information, the blueprint, so to speak, the stepping stones to get to the judgment and pass it so that you can get to heaven. So that's more or less the idea of this book, the final I mean, exam. It's, it's, uh preparing for the judgment.
it's it's a great way of following up from dying to live and then finally mm. i think getting people excited about i mean reading it i mean I, I got excited about okay well how can we get to heaven how can we achieve the salvation of our soul and here on the catholic toolbox that's the aim of everything we do is to center mm. it towards aiding the salvation of our soul i mean it seems to me in the church today sometimes we we can be distracted from um a series of initiatives um we can be distracted you know and get you know we can get sometimes caught up with uh, church politics we can get caught up with you know too much charity events organizations and prayer and we can actually forget about the whole meaning <laughs> the source and center of why we're we're actually living our faith which is to save our soul to get to heaven it was funny i, I was actually conversating with a deacon many years back before COVID and uh, he'd heard about what I said here on the show that, you know, um, that the, 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 the point, uh, the point and goal of our faith is to save our soul. It's the salvation. He said, Oh no, it's more than that. Everything else. But then, then I, mm -hmm. I, I cleared it up to him that, you know, it was, it, it is truly about saving your soul. Everything is a means on the whole journey for the final exam. We're preparing for the final exam. And I think we can't forget that as Catholics. Often we forget that. I think um, sometimes the hierarchy might forget that. Um, but it's always important to remind ourselves when we wake up um, that we are going to face the exam, whether we like it, whether we believe it, whether we agree with it or not. It's, it's, so it's an objective thing, Father. It's, it's really going to happen. There is an exam. <laughs> we are going to die. We are going to die. There is God. There is life after death. There is a judgment. There is heaven. There's a hell too, and there's purgatory. But when we go back to children's catechism, I always quote this, and I did a funeral just last week, and invariably in a funeral, I will remind the people there why we are here and what this death means. So we go back to the first page of children's catechisms for those of us who were children in the days when we had children's catechisms, and there was the question, why did God make me? And that question is phrased today by the average person. What is the meaning of life? Does life have meaning? And, and so we answer with the catechism as the catechism of the Catholic Church does. The big catechism has the same answer in slightly different terms, but more or less the same. Why did God make me? To know, love, and serve him on earth in order to be happy with him forever in heaven. That's why we are here. This is the objective of life, to know, love, and serve God in order to be happy with him forever in heaven. And before we get to heaven, we have to go through the judgment. So it, it's vital. This whole question is absolutely vital. And when you're writing to non-Catholics, you're reminding them too, well, first of all, the fact that they are going to die, everybody acknowledges that. Some may not believe in life after death. Then they can read the first book, and I make constant reference to dying to live. And on the cover of the new one, the final exam, at the top are the words, sequel to dying to live. So I dare say many readers reading the final exam will be led to go back and buy dying to live if they haven't already read it. And, and bought it, and that will situate them in this reality of life after death 
and then here is how we prepare for the judgment. So I think it's a very relevant question for everybody, Catholics, non-Catholics, we're all going to die. There is a judgment, there is life after death, and we do want to get to heaven. So this is a, a preparation for that. Excellent, excellent. Look, I mean, it's not a very comfortable discussion, is it, Father? How, I mean, it, it explains why, I think we can infer why often a lot of clergy from the pews or in catechetical um, contexts, people don't often like to go into too much detail about dying and judgment. And it's it, it's often pushed to the side. And we always want to talk about the good side of things, the more happy side of things. Do you think that's the case? And how can we make it a bit more of a, 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 a an engaging discussion without making it so daunting for people? Which is why often I think we, we avoid it, preaching about this. Yeah, I think that's right, that in ordinary conversation, it, the topic doesn't come up, people would find it uncomfortable. In the context of a funeral, like the one I did last week, it, it's very relevant when you're preaching, you're standing up there doing the funeral, giving the homily. And in this particular case, the man that had died had become a Catholic only four years before, just before he got married. And his friends were there, many friends were there. This, this man loved surfing. So many of his friends were of that same age, late 40s, who were, who were surfies and with, with probably no religion. And then I addressed them at the beginning of the, of the funeral. I invited everyone and, and I said, there's many non-Catholics here. Please feel free just to remain seated if you like throughout the whole ceremony. We're celebrating the funeral within a mass and I explained what the mass was and how we pray in it and we worship God in it. So in that context of people that probably had no religion and maybe didn't even realize it for some of them that their friend had become a Catholic and he lived an exemplary life as a Catholic in those few years of his life in the faith, that one can touch those souls. And I was just before I came into my room, I was visiting a couple and having a cup of coffee with them and they had been at the funeral. And they were saying some of these men that appeared not to be Catholics were sitting in front of them. And at the beginning, they weren't paying much attention. But when I got up to give the homily, they were, they were looking very intently at this priest and what I was saying. Because I realized in any funeral, you're preaching to the non-believers. You're not only preaching to the family who have Catholic faith. You're preaching to other people there and reminding them life after death, the beauty of it, of heaven and that this man undoubtedly at least is on his way to heaven if he hasn't already reached it. And, and a funeral is an ideal opportunity or in the context of the death of someone that we're reading about, might be the death of Cardinal Pell or Pope Benedict or a friend of someone, then people do think for a while. But in general, as you said before, we tend to leave that whole question of what happens after we die out of our field of vision. We're caught up in the day-to-day, -day, my problem, my health, my job, my relationship with my brother-in-law or whatever it is. We forget, well, wait a second, all of this is in the context of preparing for heaven. All of this can be very valuable. This problem that I am facing today, this sickness, this operation that I'm going to have, this cancer, this heart attack, this automobile accident, whatever it is, maybe has meaning in God's plan for me. Maybe he allowed that so that I would come closer to him, that I would be led to pray. So the day-to-day -day absorbs us 
we forget where we are going. And that's why the life of prayer is so important at the beginning of the day, offer that day to God. At the end of the day, examine our conscience. How did I go today? Am I storing up treasure in heaven? Did I sin? Am I sorry for my sins? Can I go to confession if I'm a Catholic? So I think these books are extremely important for everybody to, to put their feet on the ground of the reality of life here, which is beautiful, and of life hereafter, which is even more beautiful, of course. And keep grounded, keep reminding ourselves all of this is in the context of pre-preparation for life after death. I just wanted to go through some of the people who've endorsed your book. I know there's some big names here um, that are behind your book. Um, let's go through it. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I know you have some some great people backing your book. Well, when you write a book, it's it's the custom generally to have a few recommendations. In fact, I've been given Scott Hahn's most recent book, and he's got pages and pages of recommendations by Protestants, by Catholics, by bishops, by priests. And I don't have that many. But you want people who know something about the topic and then can in some way appeal to the reader who may not be a Catholic. And that at least these recommendations are coming from people knowledgeable in the field. So the first one in this book is actually Scott Hahn himself, whom we all know. And a little bit of background on that. When I wrote Dying to Live, I sent it to Scott. I've had correspondence with him. I haven't known, met him personally. But I sent him the text of the book. And I asked, would you be willing to write a few lines of recommendation for the book? I didn't hear from him for months. And I didn't pursue it because I know how busy he is. Some months later, I had an email, I think it was from his secretary, who said, Scott um, just overlooked your book, forgot about it, whatever it was. He really loves your book. Is it too late to write a recommendation? And I said, the book is already published, but by all means, write a recommendation, which might be able to go into a future edition of the book. Well, he didn't send that either at the time. Then when this book came out, I reminded him that I had sent him the previous text, the previous book, and maybe he might like to write something for this one. Then he launched into a beautiful recommendation for Dying to Live, the first book. But it's, it's, it's full of, of praise for the book. He really liked the book. And I sent that on to the publisher for future editions of Dying to Live. And then I thought, this is a recommendation for the present book. But then a couple of days later, I realized, no, this is a recommendation for the previous one. And then a day or two later, I get another email from Scott recommending the final exam. So this is the first of the recommendations. It's on the, the top of the back cover and also in the, in the inside first pages, there's a few recommendations. Then a couple of other ones are from ethicists. For example, the foreword to the book is from Xavier Simmons, who's an Australian, presently working at Harvard in an ethics institute there, which is very solid. And I asked Xavier, would he mind writing the foreword for the book, which he did. So the recommendation of somebody at Harvard always gives it a little bit of credibility too. And then two people involved in, in bioethics, one of whom is 
Bernadette Tobin. She's the head of the Plunkett Ethics Institute. That's what it's called. It's the Plunkett yep. in any case. And it operates in conjunction with Australian Catholic University and St. Vincent's Hospital. Bernadette has been the head of that for a long time. She often appears in, in ethics seminars and launching books. I think she launched Xavier's book actually on, on conscientious objection in the medical sphere. So Bernadette has another recommendation and she figures prominently on the back cover. Then another one is from the woman who teaches bioethics or, or medical ethics at the University of Tasmania. When I was chaplain of the university there in the early 90s, she was actually a student of medicine and she attended some classes that I gave voluntarily. I mean, I was voluntary and the students were voluntary if they wanted to come. It wasn't part of the curriculum, but at lunchtime, I gave some talks on bioethics and, and uh, she was there too. So she was uh, not another one to give a recommendation. Then there were a couple of people that I had talked with who were very interested in the natural law. And one of them is a professor of law at the University of Tasmania, professor of criminal law. And he's now the president of the Tasmanian Law Reform Institute or whatever it's called. And so he has one then another lecture in law at Sydney University. And I had met her and talked with her about the natural law and sent her my paper on the natural law that I delivered actually in the University of Tasmania to the law students. So she wrote another recommendation. Then the friend from Brisbane wrote one as well. So there's a few from different backgrounds, but all people interested in the topic and they were happy to write a few recommendations. So I think that helps if a reader in a, in a bookshop, for example, picks up the book, leafs through it, sees some recommendations from people in different fields that he's aware of or she's aware of, or names that they're aware of might help to sell the book. Exactly. I mean, that that's just tremendous. That's a well-rounded uh, series of recommendations there. Um, and it's not just within an ecclesiastical body, but these are outside credible sources, um, people, respectable people within their fields. Um, yeah. And that that's absolutely amazing. So let's go through the, the layout of the book from the front of the cover to the back. Uh, how do you lay this book out? And let, let's go through the skeleton of it. Yeah, well, the skeleton is the first part and the second part. So it's divided into two, which is, as I said before, general moral issues like the role of conscience, the role of emotions, the different types of sin. The, 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 the chapter on, on suffering is there. That earlier chapter on objective morality and the natural law. Um, and this I'll give you a background on the natural law. When I was going to the University of Tasmania to be the chaplain, the year before I started there, I had a meeting with some students in the law school. Just happened to be there because some of the students that we had met over the years in Sydney or elsewhere were studying law. So I met with a few students there. And when we finished, they introduced me to the Dean of Law. And he said, you must give us a talk on the natural law sometime. And I smiled and didn't say anything, but I wouldn't be able to give a talk on the natural law because I didn't know, well, I know a little bit about it, of course, but I had never really studied it in depth. And I certainly wasn't going to give a talk on the natural law to law students. Sometime later, I was asked to give a talk on the natural law to members of Opus Dei. And for that, I got a book called 
50 Questions and Answers on the Natural Law by Charles Rice from the University of Notre Dame in the United States. And the book was an absolute gem and all based on the natural law. Of course, it was questions and answers on that, the Nuremberg trials. And when I was preparing the talk and reading the book, I said to myself, every law student in the country should be exposed to this. So then when I was back at, at Tasmania, I was there for six years as chaplain of the university. I went back to the head of law, who was a different person at that time, and the future governor of Tasmania, who now finished a couple of years ago, Kate Warner. And I asked her, do you teach the natural law in your curriculum? And she said, I really don't know. She implied it's not a separate subject. She said, but if anyone teaches it, it would be Michael Stokes, who teaches jurisprudence. Well, it so happened that I knew Michael Stokes very well because I was playing tennis with him every week. So I went to Michael, who was a good Mormon, and I asked, do you teach the natural law? And he says, I really don't. It's too vast a topic. But if you want to give one of my two-hour seminars to jurisprudence subject students, I'd be very happy. So I accepted that, and I gave that paper, and I made it very academic, lots of footnotes and legal terminology. And then I gave it, and there's some very substantive issues there and um, that they, they might not have heard of before, but by the natural law, things like abortion are totally wrong and so on. And then the next time I saw Michael, I asked him, by the way, how did those students, they were like third, fourth, fifth year students, very intelligent ones, not everybody studies jurisprudence, so they're intellectuals. They're in the main, practically no Catholics. And if there's any Catholics, they're probably not practicing. How did they take that? And he said, they really liked it. And so did I. Can you give it again? So anyway, the chapter on the natural law on objective morality towards the beginning of the book is a fundamental one to give the context of morality being objective. So a number of chapters on general moral issues and then we go through the Ten Commandments. And here, the reader might be inclined to say, but wait a second, the Ten Commandments are Judeo-Christian ethics. They were given to the Jews by God through Moses on Mount Sinai, written on tablets of stone. Christians have adopted them and they embrace them too. But I'm not a Christian or a Jew. So then, at the beginning of that presentation of the Ten Commandments, I argue, as I do throughout each one of the Ten, that these are not Judeo-Christian ethics, these are natural law. So throughout the treatment of the Ten Commandments, one by one, I show how each one of them is natural law. Now, one of those Ten Commandments is the third, Remember, to keep holy the Sabbath is more specifically Judeo, keeping holy one day of the week, and in particular, Saturday, the seventh day of the, of the week. Christians change that right at the beginning to Sunday. And that aspect that we dedicate one day a week to the worship of God is not specifically natural, but dedicating worship to God 
who exists and all civilizations have believed in God and have had some form of worship, some form of religion, that's natural. It's there everywhere. So I, I argue that point in that particular commandment too, that even worshiping God, not necessarily on one day a week, but worshiping God in general is natural law. And then we go through all the commandments and yeah. give arguments, give testimonies from other people about this is just natural law. And I, when I was planning the book, I was asking myself, am I going to deal with sensitive issues like contraception? Now, abortion mm, is not yeah. sensitive. It's pretty fundamental. So I definitely deal with that. But not only do I give the, the teaching on life beginning in the womb, it's human life. It's the most vulnerable, defenseless, innocent of human beings. We can't kill it. But I give a quotation from Mother Teresa of Calcutta. So she's talking in a prayer breakfast before 4,000 people in Washington, including President Bill Clinton and his wife, Hillary, Vice President Al Gore and his wife. And when Mother Teresa speaks, she speaks from the heart and she speaks very, very eloquently. And she's talking about abortion being the biggest enemy to peace in the world. And she says, if, if we allow a mother to kill her own baby, how can we tell people not to kill each other? <laughs> it's just eminent common sense. And people gave her a great round of applause, of course, at the end. And then on contraception, it's just natural law. It's, it's not love. When a couple are using contraception, it's not love. And I quote John Paul II on that. But also, I got a brilliant quote from Malcolm Muggeridge, who was an atheist for most of his life, brilliant British journalist who became a Catholic in his late 70s. And he said, I think it was a radio interview with the BBC, that on the issue of contraception, he said, there's only one church which stands firm on this issue. Apart from, he said, some ultra conservative Protestant ones on the issue of contraception. And he said, I had to stand with that church, which has the courage to proclaim that doctrine, which is going to be torn to shreds by the idiotic pagan society we live in. Now I had to stand firm with that church who had the courage to teach that. So it's a nice quote on contraception. So we deal with some sensitive issues too, not just the, the main ones like thou shalt not kill an adult innocent person, but other areas in the area of the fifth commandment. So we go through all the 10 commandments showing how they're just natural law. And it may be that some readers are going to object to say, well, look, I personally think this business of the Catholic Church's teaching on contraception is wrong. My wife uses contraception or my use contraception. Fine, let them, let them say that, but let them hear too. A reasoned defense of these natural law teachings that maybe they won't think about it and realize maybe this writer is true. So I don't know where this book will end up, I think a lot of people are going to read it. They're urgently waiting for it. Having read the first one, they can't wait for the next one. We have a book launch planned already for early March by the Catholic Weekly, and there will be other ones in Sydney, and we're planning one for Brisbane 
probably have one in let's talk in a little Melbourne about the details of the book launch uh where are there any details that we know at this stage about where they will be or on what days yes what we will have is not so much what we would normally call a launch but an evening with father flutter is the the title i think that's the way it's presented as we present this book dying to live the date is friday the 3rd of March. We yeah. wanted to have it in February, but there's another book launch that the Catholic Weekly is holding. So the 3rd of March will be a Friday. It will probably be late afternoon for workers in the city, as we had an earlier one for Dying to Live, and it was very successful. Lots of people were there with some nibblies and coffee and tea beforehand, probably beginning about 6 or 6.30. It will yeah. be announced in the Catholic Weekly and on their website and so that's one date the third of march maybe perusi will have one before that as well and um, so we want to promote the book that people can hear about it and actually when i was up in brisbane talking with anthony capello who's the publisher of connor court he said if we have one in brisbane what he would offer he will take the books himself is the the special price of the two books, Dying to Live and the final exam yep. for $40 instead of roughly 50. So it'll be a little bit of a, a deal. And I think the Catholic Weekly might be able to organize that with the Mustard yep. Seed Bookshop too. Excellent. So let's, um, let's talk a little bit about how you managed to fit writing this book in with your extremely busy schedule. I mean, the chaplain of a school um, and, and giving a lot of direction to people running retreats, uh, hours and hours of confession, uh, um, courses, seminars, flying to and uh, fro Hobart, uh, how do you, how, and, and Brisbane and many other places that you're at. How do you manage to find the time to fit this in? I explained that in the introduction <laughs> to the book. And the answer is, uh, it's interesting in that when I received the email from that friend in Brisbane who said, please write another book in this same style, as I said, I, I, I thanked him for the email. I had no intention whatsoever of writing another book. I said, I don't have time to write books. But then when a month or so later I was praying about it, I got this idea of using the material I had already written. So that was going to make it a little bit easier the material on part three of the catechism from the journey into truth, DVDs and book. But you still have to find the time. And as I explained in the introduction to the book, I think it's an example of an experience we all have. And that is when you really want to do something, you will find the time. I really wanted to write this book. So on the 1st of July, I started writing. As I remember, it was a Friday. And I gave myself six months so that this was the first day of the last six months of the year. And I gave myself until the 31st of December to finish writing the book. I was helped by some medical issues, one of which was I developed a very sore hip when I was playing tennis. And the only remedy was to give that hip Arrest. So the hours that I would have spent more or less every week, just a couple of hours playing tennis, gave me some time so I could use that time. Then I developed 
um, another medical issue, which can't even remember what it was now, but um, well, I went to a physio, yeah, and the physio said, "Well, give it a rest and and do these do these exercises." But there was another medical issue which now isn't coming to mind. But all of that meant that I had more time, and so it was I couldn't play golf either for a long time because of rain. I think that was the issue there. So many Mondays when we would have played with other priests, we couldn't play, and I could spend Mondays Mondays writing mm -hmm. a book too. So in the end, using every available hour, and just an hour here, an hour there, I, I got through the book in four months, not six. And there were two retreats that I gave in the middle of that where I knew I would have a little bit of time to write. The latter of those was giving a retreat to the Carmelite nuns in Launceston in Tasmania. And they wanted two meditations a day, plus confessions in spiritual direction. It was quite a bit of time in the confessions in spiritual direction. But I, I knew when I started giving that retreat that I would have some time to, to write the book and to finish it on the retreat, which I managed to do. So that gave me the... Um, the, the chance to do it. And now I remember what the other issue was. And that was, I developed an inguinal hernia and that required an operation. And I get, as soon as I came back from the retreat in, in Launceston, the, the surgeon booked me in as an emergency straight away virtually. And he said, stay off of anything violent or um, energetic for four weeks. So that included golf as well as tennis. That gave me more time. So with all of that, I could then go over the book several times and editing it and getting it ready for the printer and the publisher. So it was all sent up to him. And now it's coming up, by the way. We're now doing this recording on the 24th of January. And the book should be out in about two weeks. He said the first week of February. So within the first two weeks of February, expect the book to be available. It'll be available on Amazon and the Book Depository and and Booktopia and all of the online mm -hmm. sources, but also Amazon as well. It should be on Amazon as well. Yes. In fact, one of the interesting things about the size of the book, I've written quite a few books, especially I'm sitting on my desk here and in front of me are the five volumes of Question Time, one, two, three, four, and five, Tour of the Catechism, Journey into Truth, and they're all of a certain size. And then this book is a bit longer and a bit wider. And the publisher explained that's the Amazon size. They want a book of a certain certain dimensions. So it's a bit bigger. And then the next book is exactly or virtually the same length and it'll be the same size and the same price of $24.95 or something like that. So it should be out in the next couple of weeks. And some of the book sales people like Perusia Media has already advertised it and coming soon or whatever they've put. So it'll be available soon. And those who are going to watch this program can look towards their bookshop and order it already or whatever, however they want to get it. It will be available very soon. Yeah. So I recommend to people to go directly to Perusia Media. You can go to perusiamedia.com and go to their store and look up uh, the final exam. Or you can simply Google it on, on Amazon. Uh, but if you're in Australia, especially, or, or wherever you are, I'd go directly to Perusia Media as, as a source there or any other source that you want to get. So definitely pre-order your copy. 
get your copy. This is very, very important. And this can be a great source of evangelization, doing apostolate with people, let's say in the workplace or, or, or meeting friends or family. This could be something where it could aid our apostolate in trying to evangelize people or help people to realize the reality of the world by simply handing them the book and asking for their opinion about it. That, that could be yeah, that's, an effortless yeah, this is a This is a tool in the Catholic toolbox. And just one little story. One of the people that I think you know, and I certainly know, is an engineer with a municipal council. And when the book came out, he bought extra copies explaining he wanted to give them to some of his staff, including two Muslims. One of those Muslims is a lady from Indonesia, and she took to dying to live with great eagerness, read it quickly, asked a lot of questions, and even asked this man Danilo, can I go to mass with you? Because he goes to mass on weekdays at lunchtime. So she started going to mass with him on Fridays, walking 15 or 20 minutes to get there. And then she finished dying to live. And then Danilo asked me, now what we do, what do we do if she wants to become a Catholic? And I said, well, the obvious thing is give her my other book, uh, Journey into Truth, Instructions in the Catholic Faith, which is a, a, a simple treatment of the whole catechism of the Catholic Church. Mm. So you explain the catechism very well in that series uh, there of Journey into Truth. You summarize, that's something that people, if they want to simply learn the faith, at an introductory level and a very rich level is to get a copy of Journey into Truth. And um, and is there a video series for Journey into Truth? Yes, you know, the DVDs, the book was originally planned as a DVD series suggested by a man, interestingly enough, who had been a Muslim himself, married a non-practicing Catholic, became interested in the Catholic faith, went into bookshops looking for DVDs explaining the faith, didn't find any at that time. So he came to me with another Catholic. He's an our Catholic himself, of course. Would you be interested, he said, in being filmed, giving talks on the Catholic faith for non-Catholics? And I agreed to that, and we filmed them over a period of years. The, the series came out in 2014. EWTN used that in their programming especially the, session, the sessions on the creed. So the, the, that, that series has been used by parishes for adult education, for the RCIA, which was originally intended for. So it's helped a lot of people to learn the faith. It's been um, translated into other languages as well, as has um, Dying to Live was translated into Spanish. There's a translation being prepared now in Chinese and the one being prepared in, in French. So we'll see where where all of this ends up. But these books can be very helpful, as you say, in helping non-Catholics to appreciate the faith or Catholics to come back to it or good Catholics to learn the faith that they didn't know very well when they were going through school. Let's go into two more practical tools. So the first practical tool with this book is obviously buy it, get a bunch of copies, and, the, and it's effortless evangelization where you can pass it to somebody, um, ask to follow up, but what do you think of this book? Well, let's chat about this. Um, I found it really good. Uh, let's go into practical tool number two. What can we draw from this book or, or that we can take action with for our personal or 
uh, our personal salvation, that of others, um, uh, to prepare for the final exam. <laughs> we're preparing mm. for an exam here. So it's, it's a great yeah, idea. We're, we're preparing for the one exam we cannot afford to fail. Early on in the book, there is some material on getting to know God. We're going to face God in the judgment, getting to know him through prayer. And then that is, if the person is, is an atheist even, they can start praying to this God that now they maybe believe in or whatever religion they are, we can always pray. Pray to God as you know him. There's only one God. Pray to him. So that's a practical tool. People can pray. And then throughout the book, as they're hearing about different moral issues, they will be asking themselves, wait a second, do I live this? For example, gossip is a sin. Detraction of, of saying true things about people's defects, that's, that's often gossip too, but or slander where you're making up lies to discredit someone. The person may be reading that and thinking, wait a second, I do this. I have to change my life. If I want to pass that exam, then I'd better change in this matter, telling lies and so forth. So uh, there's a lot of material in the book that will lead the reader to examine his or her own conscience and maybe change their life for the better so that they're better prepared for the judgment. That's a very practical way of using the book to change your life and maybe help someone else as well. Excellent, excellent. And then finally, our third practical tool what would be a third one that we can draw? Well, in general, in charity, before introducing the last seven commandments, I put in a chapter on charity in general. And it applies across the commandments and issues like what our Lord says to forgive. We've got to forgive people that have hurt us. We have to love people that we maybe don't like, but they're all children of the same God. We are all brothers and sisters, descendants of Adam and Eve, if you like. So there's some general moral considerations there about loving others more, being generous with them. And in that chapter, I think, is where we have a paragraph two on the Abdallahs, this beautiful Lebanese family in Sydney who lost three children in that accident on the 1st of February, which is coming up soon, when they were killed by an out of control driver on drugs and alcohol, killed along with their cousin. Four children died in an instant and another one was left in a coma. Well, they immediately forgave that driver. So things like that can help people to forgive people that they may not have forgiven and how God will forgive them more readily if they forgive others. So various aspects of charity in general, to be a more kind, generous, loving person, I think that's a very practical tool in general that will come out of reading the book. Excellent, excellent. And uh, I'm really excited for the book. And um, what's the exact date that the book will be launched and will be available? No, well, the date of publication and launch... I, I don't know because it will depend on the printer. Mm -hmm. But he said the first week of February, I sent him my final approval of the page layout and there were some little corrections to be made, but I sent that probably two weeks ago. Then he sends that file down to the printer. I think it was in Melbourne. And then the printer will 
do it within his whole print schedule and then have it ready. But then the copies will have to be freighted back to Brisbane where they're distributed from there or Amazon might have the file and they print their own printing on demand. So I, I wouldn't have any idea of the exact date, uh -huh. but I would say the first two weeks of February are coming up very shortly, like a week from from tomorrow, the next day is the first of February, the first of tomorrow's uh, Wednesday and the, the first of February is next week. So in the next three weeks, that book should be out. Excellent. So I think the best thing for people to do, and I, a lot of people are inquiring, everyone's very excited and uh, and keen to get a copy, is put in your orders now with Perusia, with Amazon, whichever platform you want to use. I highly recommend to go to perusiamedia.com, go to the store, um, type in or find uh, the final judgment, Father John Flader, F-L-A-D-E-R, Father John Flader, and you will find, uh, you'll definitely be able to get the copy as soon as it arrives. So thank you very much, Father, for being here. I'm very excited for the book. I know a lot of people are very excited for this second book, and uh, we pray that it's going to be a great success and it's reached by so many people. Well, thanks for having me again, George, and God bless you and all your work. Thank you very much. And uh, if you want to tune into the Catholic Toolbox, download the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Type in the Catholic Toolbox. That is the Catholic Toolbox. Don't forget to subscribe to our weekly newsletter on thecatholictoolboxshow.com. That is thecatholictoolboxshow.com. Until next week, I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh. God bless. Take care and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Mm -hmm.